This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Join the conversation and message Buck on Facebook, Instagram, or email teambuck at iheartmedia.com. He may read it on the show. Oh, the Fauciites are running for cover more with each passing day, which makes me happy to see they were completely wrong. They used the tools of fear and social media suppression and groupthink to silence uh, dissent. But now it's all coming out and it should. And there should be accountability as well. We'll certainly get into this and more in a moment. But I, I had a recent experience where I had a meal delivery service and it sent me the wrong thing. And guess what? I didn't have to get on the phone. I was able to text them. I was able to just go back and forth over text message to fix it. This is why you need Podium. That's what Podium does. That's what Podium provides for you. You know, Podium is a messaging platform that is powering your business. It helps you reach your customers wherever they are. Business messaging with Podium helps you gain reviews, collect payments, communicate with customers, and capture leads all from a single inbox. Podium helps you adapt to the changing customer expectations out there. When I find a business, like I just told you about, I can text, I use that business more because it's more convenient for me. I get my problem dealt with quickly. I don't have to wait on hold. And I just know that this is what I want to do going forward. I want it to be that simple and straightforward. I always tell people, don't don't leave me a voicemail. Text me, right? Same idea here. I don't want to have to wait to talk to a customer service rep for something that can be handled in three or four text messages. Podium lets you do it. You know, RP Alamo increased its business by 20% using Podium. They said that they've generated more revenue, decreased vacancy rates, and pulled in more leads they could have ever done before in multiple years. Podium is priceless for, for them. That's Tony, the owner of RPM Alamo, writing in about his success with this. It's so easy for your business right now to help you reach more customers, get more leads, just have a better user experience for everybody who's using your product. Get started free today at podium.com slash buck. That's P-O-D-I-U-M dot com slash buck. Podium.com slash buck. Well, to understand the origins of the virus, uh, Rachel, rather than being contributory to the development of drugs or vaccines. It's more to prevent this from happening again, to understand the origins so that you can be able to be prepared, whatever the origin is. You know, there's this concern, is it a natural evolution or is it something that happened out of a lab, an accident or what, or what have you? It is important to understand that, but it is being approached now in a, in a, in a very vehement way, in, in a very distorted way, I believe, by attacking me. I think the, the question is extremely legitimate. You should want to know how this happened so that we can make sure it doesn't happen again. But what's happened in the middle of all that, I've become the object of extraordinary, I believe, completely inappropriate, distorted, uh, misleading and misrepresented attacks which, you know, it is what it is, but it's it's happening, and, and that's unfortunate. Somehow it's all about Fauci still. Somehow it's all about St. Fauci. Oh, gosh, we're all supposed to feel so badly because he's receiving public criticism. Was he open to other ideas when the Democrats and the leftist authoritarians elevated him 
to the status where he could determine policies across the nation that shut down businesses, that separated people from loved ones? Was he humble at all about what he knew and didn't know when people were being prevented from seeing their relatives, even relatives who were dying, because we had to listen to the science? Was there honesty from him about the origins? Was there honesty from him about what we knew and when we knew it when it came to COVID-19? No, of course not. He pretended to know a lot that he didn't know. And now we're in a position, now we're in a point where the evidence has become not just a preponderance, but the evidence is now getting to the point where I would say it is clear that this came from a lab on balance, looking at everything. It's a circumstantial case. I'm open to there being other theories. I'm open to there being other evidence. But right now, if you were if you were a jury and you were using a civil case standard where it's you know, greater than 50 percent, you definitely would say it's a lab. I'd say we're getting close to beyond a reasonable doubt, a criminal justice standard. And I think we're getting to the point now where nothing else makes sense. So absent other evidence, you'd have to say this is the story of a lab leak. And that's what it is. Um, There's a piece in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. The science suggests a Wuhan lab leak. The COVID-19 pathogen has a genetic footprint that has never been observed in a natural coronavirus. Uh, I, I have to say, this is where you do get into expertise and levels of knowledge that people outside of the scientists uh, community are not going to have. If you've never worked with these things, if you don't have very specific high level training, You're not going to know what the heck they're talking about when they get into uh, CGG or uh, CGG, CGG, Cove 2. I mean, I I don't even really look. I, I read through this a few times. It has to do with genetic sequencing and it has to do with the actual structure of the virus, the amino acids. I mean, this is getting down to the atomic level of what goes into a virus. And here's the the basic takeaway, right? These are the, uh, here's what they write. A genome is a blueprint for the factory of a cell to make proteins. The language is made up of three-letter words, 64 in total, that represent the 20 different amino acids. For example, there are six different words for the amino acid arginine, the one that is often used in supercharging viruses. Every cell has a different preference for which word it likes to use the most. In the case of the gain-of-function supercharge, other sequences could have been spliced into this same site. Instead of a CGG-CGG, known as a double CGG, that tells you the protein factory to make two arginine amino acids in a row, you'll obtain equal lethality by splicing any one of 35 of the other two-word combinations for double arginine. So this is what is is being said here, in in essence, right? Because they really do get into the science. This is by Stephen Kay and Richard Muller. 
Stephen Kay is the founder of Atosa Therapeutics, and Muller is an emeritus professor of physics at the University of California, Berkeley, and a former senior scientist at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. These are two scientists who are telling you straight up, when you really look at what the COVID-19 virus is, what it is made up of, it is almost certain that this involved human in-lab manipulation. You would have to believe in extreme coincidence. And remember, there's always the possibility out there of extreme coincidence, right? Even, even when they do you know, DNA results, they'll say, well, the, the chance of this being somebody else's DNA is like one in a billion. Okay, so it's you. You're the, you know, if it's a crime scene, they've got your DNA, it's one in a billion, you're the guy. We, we, we don't sit around worrying about the one in a billion chance it's some other guy. They didn't give us odds here, but they're saying that in that this aligns the structure, the basic structure of the COVID-19 virus aligns with an in the lab thesis for gain of function research changes. So this is the much more likely situation. This is now getting to the point where it's it's clear that that is what happened. And now China is never, they will never admit it. They'll always say, well, there's a possibility there's something else. Because imagine the consequences. Imagine what this would open up. I mean, you had Trump over the, over the weekend saying that there need to be reparations from China. Play nine. The time has come for America and the world to demand reparations and accountability from the Communist Party of China. We should all declare within one unified voice that China must pay. They must pay. They must pay, he says. Do you think they will? Do you think they plan on it? No. In fact, China, the same way that they refuse honesty about their own history. I mean, you can't teach about Mao's famine and the 40 to 60 million dead and the weaponization of starvation the Chinese Communist Party engaged in against its own people. You can't teach that. You can't talk about that in China. You can't talk about the one-child policy in China. You, you can't have these discussions. Folks, this is an authoritarian regime. They don't care what the rest of the world thinks. They've got a lot of influence, a lot of money, and a lot of people. And they're going to do what they want to do and what they can do to maintain power. That's it. It's no moral accountability. But bring this back for a moment to Fauci. He took us down the wrong path along with many others. Why? Because the most important thing to them in 2020 in the election year, well, in the election in general, was to defeat Donald Trump. That was the single most important service they could provide the country in their minds, more so than getting the origins of COVID-19 right. They have corrupted science. They have undermined the public's faith in actual data. And the ramifications of this are long-lasting and deeply destructive. People will not, will not look at scientific data. They will not look at anyone who believes there's a consensus around science the same way, at least those who are capable of independent thought and applying reason and rationality to complicated questions. The sheep 
who still march around with their masks on outside, even after vaccination, the sheep are never going to change. But the rest of us have an obligation to continue to chase the truth. Fauci is a fraud. Don't ever forget it. And I'm just wondering, and you touch on this in the new book, where you see people like the former president and some Republicans targeting Dr. Anthony Fauci now, saying he should be fired, painting him as the big villain in this entire pandemic. I wonder what you make of that. I think it's totally ridiculous. I mean, you know, Fauci has served under seven presidents. He's been a stalwart in public health and more obviously more people trust him than trust the former president. So I think a lot of the the reaction that you find from the Trump administration and people that work for it is a, a kind of resentment of, you know, the fact that Fauci is still in public life and the former president is on the margins. What an idiotic response you get from Lawrence Wright on CNN. But but the stupidity that you can expect in defense of Fauci and Fauciism knows no bounds. They'll say anything. They'll they'll speak about this in ways that you could look at them and say, are, are you actually idiots or are you just pretending? It doesn't matter. What are they going to do? Admit that they burned all credibility as journalists, as scientists, the lockdowners, the Fauciites burned all their credibility pretending to know so much more than they did, being wrong over and over again, and doing so in a way that ultimately led to power for their side. They must defeat Trump. This pandemic was the bolt of lightning in our electoral politics that gave the Democrats a you know once-in-a-century opportunity to win an election that they absolutely should not have been able to win. And there's a lot of things that went on. There's a lot of things we could talk about that the pandemic did that changed the way a vote on Donald Trump after four years would have gone. But now we see with this Biden team, the, the Democrats who are in charge, these people are not good at governance. They're not impressive. They're not making America a safer, better, stronger place. No, they're making it a weaker, less prosperous, more onerous, more depressing place to be. That's what the Democrats excel in. But we're all in it together. Equally miserable. That's what they that's what they offer as the end result of their policies. Oh, it's so much better than it was under Trump. Right. That's what they tell you. Oh, yeah. How? In what way? What has gotten better? I could talk to you about a lot of things that have gotten worse. But now they. They, they create straw men and they throw up all these defenses of how of Fauci. And it's so mean. And Fauci's a great. Listen, to this guy, he served under seven presidents. He's a bureaucrat who, who sat around going to meetings, you know, telling people to have safe sex and wash their hands during flu season. That was really his contribution. If you if you don't believe me, you think I'm exaggerating. Go back and look at some of the stuff he used to say about HIV. Totally wrong. Totally wrong. And what do they always say? Oh, well, the science evolved. Well, you see, if they had some humility and were willing to admit that they were making conclusions, they were drawing conclusions and making policies that they shouldn't have been based upon the actual certainty or lack thereof of the science, I'd be more forgiving. But they create false consensus. They leverage fake certainty. And then when we finally prove that they're wrong, they say, well, yeah, I guess we learned some new stuff. Think of the psychological damage that has been done to this country. I was out this weekend. I was in a, I was in Central Park 
in Manhattan, and and the people out in the park were thankfully unmasked. But then I walk out, and you go on the streets, and everyone's still masked up. I was going to make a reservation at a restaurant that said that you can't that for all people who dine inside, you have to to eat in the restaurant. You have to show proof of vaccination. And I just want to say, well, your staff must all be vaccinated. So what the heck is the problem? They're fine. They're protected. What? Oh, I see. This is now a the, the, the vaccination card is going to become the new virtue signaling that masks masks are going out of style now for people who are take the virus seriously. Uh, now it's going to be vaccination cards. And they can demand, you know, private places are going to demand proof of this. You got to show me the email. You got to show me the card you have. Uh, otherwise, you can't eat here. Oh, as if that's reasonable or rational. I mean, I hope that places that do that, uh, restaurants that do that, um, suffer business-wise uh, dramatically. Because what they're doing is absurd. It's not rooted in the science. And they're acting like a bunch of babies. All right. Their staff, the staff, I know the staff at this particular restaurant, they're young people. Actually, one of them is a guy I grew up with. They're not at high risk to begin with, and they're all vaccinated. So they're going to tell someone like me who is immune from a a prior COVID infection that has been cleared. They're going to tell me that I can't eat in their establishment because I'm not going to get injected with a vaccine that I don't need. And that six months from now, I might have to get a booster for anyway. I'm not welcome there. Okay. Let's let's have that conversation then, you know, but but ultimately this became so politically tribal and the left made this such an issue of virtue signaling and being part of the in group and everything else that people now you see. I mean, they're it's like they're suffering emotional and intellectual damage from Fauciism that just lingers on simply absurd. It's absurd. And we're supposed to believe what? The Biden administration is going to hold China accountable now? I, I don't think anybody really believes that. And I'm, I'm seeing that Donald Trump is feeling a little bit more, a little bit more uh, of a need to get out there and speak about what happened in that Chinese lab and speak about Fauci who is, as I've said all along, I, I am proud. Every time I called Fauci an evil little totalitarian smurf, a Democrat lab coat tyrant, a, you know, a, a, an authoritarian who's just not that bright and who's been skating along as a bureaucrat for decades and decades, every time I said that was true. Trump also knew this guy was, a, but Trump should have fired him, but he wouldn't do it. Play eight. The media, the Democrats, and the so-called experts are now finally admitting What I first said 13 months ago, the evidence demonstrates that the virus originated in a Chinese government lab. Couldn't say it. You couldn't say it. And Dr. Fauci, who I actually got along with, he's a nice guy. He's a great promoter, you know, not a great doctor, but he's a hell of a promoter. He is, isn't he? Uh, That's that's what you're that's what you're seeing. That's the reality of this circumstance. Dr. Fauci understood the politics as a bureaucrat that's really his skill set which way is the wind blowing how do i elevate myself in the system and remain protected by the system what did he do that was helpful in this whole process what was the what was the fauci decision 
that now that we have even more information, you say that was really smart. That made a lot of sense. I'm telling you, I sit here. I don't think there is one. I don't think there is a place where Dr. Anthony Fauci made a call that in retrospect, you say that was a smart, gutsy call. I think this guy was wrong on everything at every moment that it counted. And the Democrats don't want to admit this because he was their single most effective tool against Donald Trump's reelection. And it was all a fake, a fraud. That's who he is. Well, Maria, the more the more we see, the more we know every sign, every piece of evidence that we've seen today continues to stack up to suggest that this did indeed come. This Wuhan virus came from the virology lab there in Wuhan. Uh, we've seen almost no evidence that supports the zoonotic theory that it somehow leapt from a bat uh, to another species. Uh, this wasn't the politically correct thing to say back in the spring of last year when I began to see evidence accumulating in that direction. Uh, what precisely happened, we don't know. But every one of those laboratories uh, that the Chinese engage in, just like, frankly, every state on enterprise, is operated and controlled by the People's Liberation Army or their security apparatus. That's certainly true at the Wuhan Institute of Virology as well. We don't know precisely what was taking place there because the Chinese Communist Party is covering it up and won't let us know. But there are a lot of unanswered questions about what these activities were why they were engaged with them, were they connected to their military in any way, and if, in fact, this leak came from that laboratory. Is it beyond the pale? Now, this is, this is a theory. I want to be very clear on this. I'm not saying this happened. I'm asking us to think about this possibility, especially given what we weren't allowed to say, according to the consensus, the, uh, the Democrat consensus on science that has been exposed as a fraud. But... Let's just think this through for a moment. Is it possible, is it plausible that the Chinese Communist Party and the the People's Liberation Army of China, uh, is it possible that they may have wanted to understand gain of function or, or understand where a virus can be made more lethal, how it can be made more lethal through gain of function, not just to be able to deal with a possible outbreak better, but to have at their disposal, should they want to, the weaponized, uh, a weaponized virus. Is that, is that something that's so immoral? I mean, China's got a lot of nuclear weapons. China's got all kinds of stuff that I'm sure we don't know about or even talk about in this country. This is an immoral regime. And this is a regime that puts people today in concentration camps. This is a this is a country, a, a government that's willing to sterilize people, its own people. That will enforce that enforced a one child policy. Now, this is a government that in its history, as I mentioned earlier. Because of its incredible, stupendous communist Marxist induced blunders created an enormous famine with the Great Leap Forward that killed over 40 million. I mean, the estimates of it, they don't really even know, but millions and millions of people starved to death. A horrible way to die. Families, whole villages starved to death. This was in the 60s. All right, this was not long ago. Um, and, and I think that everyone needs to start to see this as... Uh, a, a, I'm sorry, you know, it was 58 to 62, so to be clear. I mean, I want to say it's the 60s. I mean, it's kind of the late 50s, early 60s. Um, but when you start to look at what 
really is at the heart of the Chinese Communist regime. There's no moral revulsion from uh, from doing extremely horrific things to their own people. You don't think that they would have at least as a possibility want to keep open the possibility that they could unleash a plague anywhere on the world they wanted to. I mean, they've got nuclear weapons that they am sure would be willing to use if if they felt that it was not even if it was in self-defense, they would feel if it was in their interest, they should use nuclear weapons. Uh, this is this is a government that is willing to embrace extreme calculated evil. And so I think we have to at least leave open the possibility. I, I'm not yet at the place where I find it. I don't find it plausible. That's not the same thing as saying I don't think it's uh, I, that, that I can tell you for sure it didn't happen. I don't find it plausible that this was intentionally released. I don't find that plausible. Um, that doesn't make sense to me. But I understand people make that case sometimes. They say, well, China was willing to sacrifice some portion of itself in order to get a, a, a jump on the rest of the world from this. But th- I, I'm just telling you, I don't find that theory compelling. I don't, that doesn't add up to me. I do believe, and I'd put it at 75% certainty in my mind. That's in my mind. That's just, I'd put it at 75% certainty that this, this was an engineered virus coming out of a lab. And some of you are probably yelling at me, Buckish, you should be 95%. But I, I just, just to leave open the possibility of some zoonotic missing link thing that we haven't been able to found, uh, been able to find, or they have been able to find, um, I would say it's 75%. But would China have been willing to engage in gain of function research, not so that they'd be better able to stop a pandemic should it if it were to come uh, break out naturally, but so they'd have the knowledge about how to supercharge viruses for weaponization purposes should they choose to use it for that reason. Do I believe that China, as a government, would have in 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 its mind we want to learn how to turn a virus ultra lethal and ultra fast spreading? I do think that that's possible. I do find that credible. And could that have influenced some of the research going on in this laboratory? With some degree of uh, plausible deniability that that's really what they were doing, right? They say it's so they can stop a plague. But isn't it also possible that they wanted to know how to start one? Just in case. Just in case. I think, I think the answer is yes. Pompeo, who was a very able Secretary of State under Trump, is making the rounds now telling everybody that we need to stop just thinking of China as a competitor, right? We can be friends. We are economic competitors with the EU, for example. We're economic competitors with Britain, France, Germany. But we're not looking to undermine those countries. We don't want to see economic catastrophe in those countries. We feel a kinship with not just the people, but with the governments of those countries, and many others. Japan is another one. With, with our allies, it's like, a, it's like a tennis match that we're hoping that we win, but at the end we shake hands and, you know, they're millionaires, we're millionaires, and we get to go give, uh, you know, our interviews to the media and everyone lives to, lives to play another day kind of a thing. With China, it's different. They want to beat us. They want us to, you know, then they want to crack, uh, they want to crack a racket over our head and end our career. 
And that's it. I mean, they have a very different approach to the sense of competition they have with the United States. And Pompeo understands that. He's out there telling everybody that. Play three. The Chinese Communist Party presents the most significant challenge to our way of life of any adversary that we have out there today. I heard him the other day say that they were a competitor, that China was somehow a competitor. Europe is a competitor. Japan is a competitor. The Chinese Communist Party wants to take us out. They want the world to operate on a system that looks like the one that they operated, tyranny, authoritarianism. We can't let that happen. And if President Biden is going to tout miles traveled and hours spent as the hallmark of success, I promise you Xi Jinping will see that as weakness. And our children and grandchildren will live in a United States that's very, very different. They want to take us out. That's one of the major philosophical differences when it comes to foreign policy between Uh, the Trump America first and just general right in America versus Biden, the Democrats and the Marxist leftist types. They really think that the problems of foreign policy all come from the U.S. and that our our opponents, our competitors, none of them are really truly enemies, whether it's the Iranians, the North Koreans or the Chinese. They're not enemies. We just have created a circumstance where there's misunderstanding And if only we, the Americans, do things differently, we can fix the problem. I think this is a fundamental misconception of what's going on in the world and the approach of different regimes and how they treat their their own people and and humanity in general. I think that there's always a reluctance. I know there's a reluctance among Democrats to be willing to say that America is a more moral regime that America is a more ethical state than these other countries, and that the problems that we are dealing with, the, the challenges that we are facing, are a result of their transgressions. Notice that, that in America, I mean, here, the, the focus of our media was always, when Trump was in office, away from Chinese culpability for the virus. It's xenophobic, it's racist. And on Trump, on America, on the anti-maskers, that was the problem. No, I think we've all seen, folks, I I think we're pretty clear on the fact that it was gain-of-function research in the Wuhan lab and the escape virus that was the problem. It was not, in fact, Donald Trump and hydroxychloroquine and bleach and whatever other nonsense they talk about. So to get those answers, to do a proper investigation, you're going to need, the U.S. is going to need access to the labs. Will you demand that? Uh, Will you put teeth on it? Will you even go as far as sanctions on China if they keep inspectors out? I think the international community is clear that um, we have to have, the international community has to have access. It has to have information. Uh, It has to have uh, meaningful uh, So what's the real pressure the U.S. will put on China for access to the lab? If uh, China denies the information, denies the access, uh, denies the transparency that's needed. And you kind of expect that. Well, let's see. uh, Mike, at the end of the day, it's profoundly in China's interest uh, to do this as well, because, look, it suffered, too. Uh, in the uh, in the outbreak of this pandemic, it it uh, it presumably has an interest as well, especially if it uh, purports to be a responsible international actor, to do everything it can to provide all the information it has to make sure we can uh, hopefully prevent this from happening again. No pressure to speak of. They'll talk about it, but they won't do anything. And this was one of the moments of of Trump's presidency that was uh, honestly among the most 
revolutionary that that not only was he did he identify the challenge and the problem of China in a in a really important and powerful way, but was willing to do something about it. I remember when we were told that Trump's tariffs on China would result in economic in enormous economic losses for Americans. Oh, my God. Trade wars lead to real wars was a thing you used to hear. Meanwhile, China had all kinds of tariffs and barriers in place against us. We just weren't weren't doing anything about it. But it took Trump to come along, somebody that felt like they knew what was really happening and have those those gut instincts about who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. That's one of the big failings of Democrats. They, they don't have the gut instincts about good and bad people, good and bad things. It's all moral relativism. It's all kind of, well, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Everybody makes mistakes, except for, you know, white male Americans who are the bad guys for white male Republican Americans. Pardon me. Who are the bad guys always and forever for everything. We're, we're the cause. White male Republicans in America are the cause of all the world's great evils. And everybody else is just kind of misunderstood or oppressed or you know, having a tough day. And why do we have to get on China's case so much? Right. We don't you know, we do bad things, too. This is the this is the pathway to liberal lunacy. Moral relativism is really the foundational uh, foundational precept of all contemporary uh, liberalism in America today. And I know that I hate using the term liberal for them, but they've hijacked our language for their own purposes, too. They're not they're anti-liberty. They really should not be called liberals. They've made liberal a term that conjures up some degree of disdain in the listener's mind because we know that liberals just keep doing that. They're just getting crazier and crazier, doing dumber and dumber things, always pushing into more areas where a, a, a rational approach would be contrary to whatever it is that they're doing. But they they have had a, a remarkably clear strategy for a long time. The left in this country has had a strategy of use government to implement their will. Use power in ways they want to. Now, I know that's, that's such a straightforward, such a simple thing to say, almost overly simplistic, right? But don't we do the same thing? No, we don't. No, conservatives sit around and they, they want to reach across the, the aisle. They want, you know, durability of institutions. They want, uh, you know, to, to hold hands and sing songs together, you know, and... and and find the middle path, the third way, whatever. Look, look at the last 20 years in American politics and, and find me the place where conservatives, where the right decided they were just going to make the other side, you know, just deal with it. We're ramming it through. We're getting it done. Stinks for you. I can think of tons of places the Democrats have done that. Tons of places. I mean, and you look at the Obama administration. Look what they did with Obamacare, for example. Uh, but look, look what they did. They're the ones that created the instability in Congress from shifting the rules to suit their temporary partisan whims. Right. They're the ones with Harry Reid that nuked the filibuster. We called it the nuclear option. Turned out it wasn't, I guess, so nuclear because they were willing to do it. But Trump has been correct. Trump has been seeing this for what it is when it comes to China for a long time. And that's one of the places where his his outsider status and willingness to break with the elite consensus of both parties on China was somewhat 
uh, revolutionary. That, that was such a big change. And he was right. And all the people that study this and say, oh, but China, you know, his approach to it. And, uh, no, no, no. Uh, it, it, is, it is essential that we see the challenges ahead for what they really are here. And the Chinese Communist Party is a big problem for the whole world. A big problem with the Belt and Road Initiative, a big problem with the really mercantilist approach, the, the taking of, uh, you know, the, the leveraging of Chinese authority and power to strip as much in the way of natural resources from the developing world as possible while also undermining democracy in those countries and doing whatever they can. I mean, a really mercenary approach from the Chinese Communist Party is what you get. We can either allow this to continue on or we say that we're going to see China for what it is as a country, which is one that has to be dealt with now firmly and where there are zero-sum aspects of our relationship. That's the way it has to be going forward. Or else we can have them dictating what, what can be in our movies, what companies are allowed to uh, allowed to exist and thrive in America because of the global pressure that China can bring. Uh, you know, we, we can allow them to influence our politics directly and indirectly the way they've been doing. You know, we can allow them to try to buy off people like, oh, I don't know, Hunter Biden and just sit around and act like it's no big deal. This is the future we face, folks. This is the choice that we all have to make. Do we confront China or not? Joe Manchin has become the new Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, during Obama's presidency, said he would do everything in his power to stop Obama. He's also repeated that now during the Biden presidency by saying he would do everything in his power to stop President Biden. And now Joe Manchin is doing everything in his power to stop democracy and to stop our work for the people, the work that the people sent us here to do. Here you have a member of Congress from New York saying that Joe Manchin taking a position to represent the state of West Virginia that is completely within his scope and within the rules, that Joe Manchin's decision itself is a threat to or a stoppage of democracy, a stoppage of democracy. What? This is democracy. This is the system we have. And I know we have a republic, not a democracy, but as you know, Democrats use these terms uh, interchangeably all the time. But it is important for everybody, I think, to know. It is important for everyone to remember that, the, the Democrats could they could be able to they, they could get around this this uh, filibuster entirely. They all they would need to do is just win more Senate seats. And that's the whole reason that we have some of these procedural checks we do is because decisions have been made by our elected government in the past that they want for for big things. You want big majorities. And, and, and so that's why what we see here is just changing of one's position democrats change how they feel about things like the filibuster depending on what is most advantageous for them and for their power that is it there's no broader principle there's there's no bigger nope that is it that is all and i just think it's so interesting that that mansion is now being treated like the bad guy by democrats because he won't go along with hr1 which is a highly partisan and would be a very Fissile political act uh, would re- result in a lot of uh, a lot of bad blood, a lot of dissension, 
among Republicans. And, and what, what we'd see is the attempt to federalize elections. It would result in a lot of lawsuits and constitutional challenges. Uh, so Joe Manchin saying, no, I'm not going to go along with that. And what do they say? That this is somehow uh, it's not even obstructionist. It's stopping our democracy from working. No, this is our democracy. This is our system. When things don't happen the way the Democrats want, they can do this babyish crying thing. They can say, oh, but you're you're you know, you're a threat to our democracy. And they can say all this stuff. It's nonsense. No, this is the way the system actually works. It doesn't it doesn't have to give the outcome that Democrats want for it to be legitimate, even though that's how they think about all of this, even though that is their approach. Right. The moment that they, you know, because a lot of this stuff, they know they're not going to convince people. They're not going to get the political support they need. So they just want the raw exercise of power through the system to be open to them. And while I don't think that they're going to do it anytime soon, there will now be an effort to still get rid of the filibuster. Uh, there'll be an effort to do that through continued pressuring uh, pressure on cinema and on mansion and on anybody who has been a problem for them in this regard. So don't think that this is over. It's not over. They'll continue on in whatever ways that they can. Um, but for right now, what we're seeing is Obama, you know, we're seeing a kind of Obamaism through the Biden administration, but without a without a president that had the rhetorical uh, rhetorical abilities that Barack Obama had. I mean, look, I, I had plenty of problems with Obama and was a a staunch critic of his administration for all eight years. But the guy's better at giving a speech than Joe Biden is. I don't think that's a newsflash to anybody. I think that's just observing reality. But now you have an Obama administration through Biden's stewardship, in a sense, right, through Biden as the conservator of the uh, Obama vision for America and even with many of the Obama people around Biden, as we know, but they're not going to get Obamacare through. They're not going to they're not going to be able to get these transformational legislative acts through. So they're just going to spend a ton of money. I mean, they're going to spend money in ways that you wouldn't have even thought was was possible 10 years ago. The federal government's just going to spend, 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 spend. Uh, and then they're going to be they're going to play a lot of games uh, rhetorically on talking about the threat to our democracy and, oh, the need for a January 6th commission. Right. They, they went from the most important issue in America for four years was the fake, phony Russia collusion lie. That was the most important thing in America for those years. Now, fast forward a little bit. What is the most important thing today? The January 6th insurrection. Now, does anybody really think that these are these are issues? If, if you were to line them up, you'd say, yeah, they're taking a fair minded view of these things. And it really is about protecting our sacred democracy. Of course not. These are issues that are first and foremost about the power of the Democrat Party and destroying anybody who would get in the way by creating other false or exaggerated narratives of fundamental peril, existential threat to the United States. This is what Democrats have been doing. I mean, you can see this. 
These stories are of existential threat to America when there's really no threat. I mean, the Russia collusion thing was a fairy tale. It was a fantasy. Didn't happen. And how much did you see on that? I mean, how many people? There are leftists who built careers on that lie. You know, there was a guy who wrote a book. He's a moron. He wrote a book called Proof of Collusion. And I remember I had a couple of Twitter exchanges with this guy. He's just a, a fantasist. The guy's delusional. I wrote a book, Proof of Collusion. There is no collusion. Didn't exist. But you read books on it. I'm sure he sold a lot of copies to, you know, the left-wing Chardonnay moms uh, living in, you know, Westchester and uh, in New York, which is a fancy suburb where Hillary Clinton is. Uh, Santa Monica or, uh, you know, or Hollywood. Uh, no, I guess not really Hollywood. That's not really where you'd have it. You'd have it. Malibu, there you go. Beverly Hills, you know, and fancy, fancy places. You know, they, they, you had all these all these people that watched too much CNN that thought that this was really a, a real threat, that there was a real challenge to America coming from Russia collusion. And now with this with this January 6th obsession, you just see the continuation of the same strategy. They're going to remind us of this all the time. And it it means that they don't have to explain their failings really to their own side, to their own voters. They don't have to deal with the fact that the border is open, that they're spending too much money, that jobs aren't what they should be. The economy hasn't recovered as quickly and strongly as it should because of Democrat policy, because of Joe Biden. They don't have to explain any of that. All they have to do is point and say, we're the only thing between you and the insurrectionists on the other side. We're the only thing that stops a white nationalist overthrow by force of the United States government. Now, to you and me, this sounds like the ravings of a lunatic, and it is, but it's done for a purpose. These are ravings that unfortunately are highly effective at creating a perception among Democrats that whatever they do is right. Whatever failings they have are irrelevant because they're keeping the country alive. That's right. They're like the doctor with the uh, with the trodes, you know, electrodes, the paddles, you know, going clear, clear, clear. I don't know if that really made a good electric sound. That sounded more like a duck was having a bad day. But you know what I mean, where they're taking the electrodes and they're uh, that, that, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to get in the way and say, oh, but, you know, you know, you really didn't you really didn't handle that. Uh, the patient's, you know, toe looks like it's pretty badly bruised. No, we're trying to keep the heart going. That's the that's their approach to dealing with criticism, or anything else because of the insurrection. That's all that matters. Whenever they need to, they'll go back to this. They'll they'll raise this issue as the primary point of discussion. Oh, the insurrection. Oh, oh, you don't support us on spending? You must you must be one of those people that supports the insurrectionists. Oh, you think Joe Biden's as bad running the economy as Barack Obama was? Oh, well, don't pay attention to that. You, you, you're one of the insurrectionists. It's now the preferred. It used to be you're a traitor for Russia. Now insurrectionist has has replaced that as the preferred baseless slur of Democrats against their political opponents, which is why this issue is so potent for them, so powerful for them, because it allows the mob to continue to fail and to overreach and to be a mess. The Democrat mob can continue doing all these things and feel sanctimonious while it does it. 
because they're fighting the insurrectionists. They're not, a, they're not having to look people like you and me in the eyes and explain how Joe Biden is making smart decisions for the economy when we all know Joe Biden's an idiot. He's not a smart guy, never has been a smart guy, doesn't understand how things work. But they don't want to have that conversation. They want to yell, insurrection! But why should federal action be bipartisan while Republican action at a state level is totally partisan? It makes no sense. Which means the GOP is waging asymmetric warfare on our democracy with Manchin's permission and even encouragement. The West Virginia senator seems to think that his party should be able to get the seven Senate Republicans who voted to convict Trump on board for the For the People Act. But seven is not ten. Even if Democrats could get Manchin's seven Republican pals to vote for S-1, it would still not be enough to get past his own beloved 60-vote filibuster threshold. Maybe, as I've said before on this show, Manchin's just not very bright. Maybe simple math is beyond him. Maybe he doesn't understand what's happening at a state level. That may be the most charitable explanation. Or maybe this MSNBC host doesn't know what he's talking about because Manchin is doing what will be best for him in his own state. It's a very clear political calculation here, which is what politicians do all the time. This is not a surprise. I think it's funny that Democrats have to pretend like they're outraged. Oh, my gosh, we're outraged at what? Joe Manchin is not going to go along with H.R. 1, which is an incredibly divisive remaking of our election system. Joe Manchin is not going to go along with nuking the filibuster. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's the big shock that some are pretending it is right now. I don't think it's a big shock at all. But there's not going to be a whole lot to be enthusiastic about for Democrats this summer. I can tell you that we're heading into a summer where there's going to be a lot of a lot of violence in American cities where law enforcement is going to continue to be in a difficult position to try to try to create public safety and order. Democrats aren't going to be able to avoid any news coverage of this. There's going to be news coverage. I mean, just in my home city here in New York, we had over the weekend a guy, it's on video, in a neighborhood that I, I work right in this neighborhood. I'm, I'm in the neighborhood pretty much every day during the week. Uh, he grabbed a woman, pushed her up against a, a wall, pulled his pants down, and he tried to rape her in, in broad daylight, 7 o'clock in the morning. I mean, these are the kind of, and this is on video, these are the kinds of stories that people see in cities and they say, what the heck is going on here? And they start to connect the dots. They start to say, hold on, maybe unwillingness to enforce laws uh, that are smaller laws, broken windows theory again, maybe a refusal to take seriously that promoting vagrancy and promoting um, situations where you're more likely to have severely mentally ill and severely substance abusing and, and addicted individuals roaming the streets and breaking more minor laws on a regular basis, uh, maybe that's going to result in bad outcomes for public safety in general. Yeah, it's exactly what's happening. This is not surprising. Just because it is surprising to libs doesn't mean it should be surprising to the rest of us. Uh, and, it, and it isn't. But this is why they're going to continue. Like I've been telling you, you're going to hear a lot in the summer months now between now and Labor Day. You're going to hear a lot about the insurrection. You're going to hear a lot about uh, about the, the threat of Donald Trump returning to overthrow our democracy. 
what they don't want is any focus on the outcome of the implementation of the Democrats' philosophy on governance, uh, specifically on law enforcement issues, and how the crime spike. They've been covering this up, or, or at least covering themselves, by saying, oh, the only reason there's this big spike in crime is because of the um, pandemic. But as the pandemic recedes, despite people walking around wearing three masks, as the pandemic uh, recedes, that's going to be an excuse that no longer is feasible, right? That's a, that's a dog that won't hunt. I always think it's fun to say that phrase. So that's where we are. And uh, there are some who are, are understanding this. And, and, you know, someone even like Jake Tapper, who's a Democrat propagandist posing as a journalist, you know, he, he's going to make sure that there's always the fallback story for Democrats will be the January insurrection. While they're not uh, while they're not getting things done, they said they would for their base because they can't get the legislation through because the country isn't on board with their Marxist agenda. And while cities are deteriorating and people are tired of Democrats, high tax, high spend philosophy. I mean, while all these things play out, while the open border just becomes more and more of a catastrophe, they're going to go back to January 6th. Here's here's fake Tapper. Play seven. There was a very real fear that day for Mike Pence's life and the lives of his family members. And yet not only did then President Trump not reach out to his loyal vice president that day to make sure that he was okay, Trump praised the mob. An event where a mob tried to lynch you is not something any rational person would agree to disagree with anyone on. And for what it's worth, I do consider Mike Pence to be rational. But what's happening is that Mike Pence is no longer in a rational world. He is trying to function and to thrive, frankly, in Donald Trump's alternative universe. And in this deranged place, not only was the election stolen, it wasn't, but we learned from multiple reports in the last few days, led by the New York Times' Maggie Haberman, Trump actually believes that he could be reinstated as president in August because of these unofficial and, frankly, fraudulent ballot audits going on in places such as Arizona. Now, that's not going to happen at all. There's no reality to it. But instead of Republican officials making that clear, they're hiding and trying to change the subject. What exactly are we supposed to say about the anonymously sourced Maggie Haberman piece that says that that Trump is going to be president again in August? I'm just wondering what what are we supposed to say about that? L- let's notice something here, friends. Uh, for one, I mean, that's just it's just absurd. Beyond, the whole thing is absurd beyond words. Right. And they've lied about Trump with absurd things so many times that I think we're allowed to just start to say, no, we're not going to play. Th- we're not going to play your game anymore. Not going to do it. Oh, yeah. Trump hates soldiers. He thinks people who died in war are suckers. The one group of people that anybody who spent any time around Trump knows that he who is a is a an arrogant guy. There's no question. Trump has a high, high ego. The one group of people that Donald Trump respects are our military fighting men and women. Okay, that's the one group that I feel like Trump, you know, he's got respect for. They lied about that with the whole all the suckers and losers stories right before the election. But notice here we are. We get drawn into the game. Even we don't want to play it because we have to shoot down the lies. Look, it shouldn't matter what your political beliefs are. It shouldn't matter what theories of the origins of COVID-19 you think are most accurate. Uh, You should be able to share your ideas online and express yourself freely. 
But the big tech monopoly out there disagrees. They openly censor conservative and right wing points of view, and they use these tactics of silencing with reckless abandon to fight against big tech's control of the Internet. I use ExpressVPN. You ever wondered how these free to access tech giants make all their money? Well, it's by tracking your searches, video history and everything you click on by building a profile on you and then selling off your sensitive data. When you use the ExpressVPN app on your computer or phone, you anonymize a lot of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers and cyber criminals. Revoke big tech's right to your data today. Secure your internet with the VPN I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck to get three extra months free with my exclusive link. Go to expressvpn.com slash buck right now to learn more. Is racism against white people possible? I think that's an important question for us right now. I, I, the answer is yes. But we have to ask the question because of some of what we see going on in high-level discourse in America today with the Marxist left, the racial Marxists constantly trying to divide us by our ethnicity, by our racial categorization for the purposes of their own power. We should ask questions like that. We should start to understand, you know, why is it that people are allowed to, for example, that there's all this celebration. You can celebrate positive characteristics. You can celebrate cultural Uh, unity and achievements of every race in America, except for being white. That is that is a true statement, right? If you if you were to talk about a a part of whiteness that you think is is good. And and then I think we could also you'd get into trouble, of course, but also the notion of whiteness, too. I mean, this treats. So if you're you know, if you're a a white Jewish Holocaust survivor, you know, your experience and, and your your racial and, and ethnic uh, perception is treated as though it's the same as if you're a, you know, seventh generation American who came here, you know, whatever, all the came here in, in the early days of America. I'm not sure my generation's routing up, but you know what I'm saying. And you go back a couple hundred years in this country and your family comes from Scotland and Ireland. Right. You, you have the same experience. Whiteness as a concept is so amorphous as to really be largely meaningless when you get down to it, but it is constantly used in discourse. I mean, you, you can find you can find white Berber uh, people, white Berber tribesmen in North Africa. I mean, their skin is white. They're white. But are they are they, you know, capital W H I T E in American racial discourse? Really? I mean, they're Arabic speaking Muslims, but OK, I guess I guess they're white. You know, you start to get into this and it's bizarre and it's divisive and it doesn't make sense. The critical race theory approach, the racial Marxist approach to America today. But unfortunately, it's very effective. And you have to start to look very effective politically. And you have to start to look at what the outer limits of this are. If I told you that Yale and this is why I asked about about racism against white people. Is that possible? Is it possible to be a racist against white people? All, all you're asking is. Are there people who hate people who are white for their skin color? I think the answer is quite clearly yes. 
It's certainly possible, and there are people who feel that way. That brings me to this next uh, this next part of this discussion. If I had told you that a psychiatrist had given a lecture at Yale University on April 6th of this year in which she talked about shooting white people as a great thing to do and how much she wants to do it and how you shouldn't talk to white people about racism and you shouldn't talk to white people about any of these issues, period. It's a waste of time. And, and that shooting them would be entertaining and, and, and feel joyful. You'd say, come on, that's too far. Meanwhile, here's the New York Times on this quote. A psychiatrist said in a lecture at Yale University School of Medicine that she had fantasies of shooting white people, prompting the university to later restrict online access to her expletive filled talk, which it said was antithetical to the values of the school. The talk titled The Psychopathic Problem of the White Mind had been presented by the School of Medicine's Child Study Center as part of Grand Rounds, a weekly forum for, for faculty and staff and others affiliated with Yale to learn about various aspects of mental health. I'm just going to keep reading some of this, folks. you got to hear this. This is New York Times reporting because the story got out there and the lectures out there. So they they have to cover it now. Right. I mean, they, they wish they didn't have to, but they do. In the online lecture on April 6th, the psychiatrist, Dr. Aruna Kilanani, who has a private practice in New York and is not affiliated with Yale, described a psychological dynamic that is on PTSD repeat in which people of color patiently explain racism to white people who deny their attacks. When people of color then become angry, white people use that anger as confirmation that we're crazy or have emotional problems, she said. She recalled a white therapist telling her in psychoanalysis that she was psychotic whenever she expressed anger at racism and said she had spent years unpacking her racism to her, even though she was the one being charged for the sessions. The cost, uh, this is the cost of talking to white people at all. The cost of your own life as they suck you dry, Dr. Kilanani said in the lecture. This drew widespread attention after Barry Weiss, a former writer and editor for the opinion department at the New York Times, posted an audio recording of it on Substack Friday. There are no good apples out there. White people make my blood boil, Kilanani said, adding that five years ago I took some actions. I, I'm reading this is all from the just taking a break from the quote for a second. This is all from the New York Times. Now, there's a lot here that I want to unpack with you, but I want to note, what do you think would be the reaction if a white psychiatrist showed up at one of the most elite universities in the world, or elitist, and started talking about how evil and awful another race of people were and how that psychiatrist was fantasizing about murdering those people of the other race because of how terrible they are as a result of their skin color. Can you imagine the outcry? I mean, they they would be calling for not only would this person never work again a day in his or her life, and you know, not only would there be all of that, they'd be saying this was incitement to racial violence, the person should be locked up, it was a hate crime. This happened April 6th. It's two months later. 
there were people in Yale Medical School who heard this lecture and were like, yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, that's what happens, I guess. You know, it sounds, she sounded pretty, she sounded like a smart lady. I mean, they were fine with it. How is that possible? Well, we know how that's possible, and that's why we have to talk about this. There's a real problem here. There, there's, a, there's an elevation in left-wing discourse of the denigration of whiteness as oppressive and evil in, in our conversations about really all racial issues all across the country. Denigration of whiteness. And you'll say, oh, but Buck, there are, there are white liberals. Yes, I know. There are white liberals who will take this point of view too, but they do so because they think they then are exempted from the characteristics of whiteness that need to be denigrated in the first place. They are above the, They're not one of the bad people who is white, you see. White liberals love this construct. It, 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 gets, it allows them to expunge themselves of guilt for their whiteness while also controlling and attacking anybody else who is white who does not share their political beliefs because this is now acceptance of and belief in racial Marxism is a is a central characteristic of being a Democrat leftist in good standing today. You have to accept this rhetoric about the denigration of of whiteness Um, and and that this is a good thing that talking about how uh, how we need to repudiate white culture, whatever that means. And I always say, I don't think that is even a thing. I don't know what there are so many different people who from so many different cultures who you could describe as white that to suggest that there's one unifying culture is isn't that clearly absurd? You know, it, it really I mean, is a recent immigrant from from Norway whose family comes from a long line of fishermen has has the same culture as a you know Sicilian immigrant. I mean, we're, we're going to pretend that this is the same. Really? But let's get back to Dr. Kilinani here. I mean, when you learn more about the extent of the insanity here, you you have to wonder what it would take for Yale University before this went public to view someone's someone's comments as worthy of of discipline on campus when it comes to whiteness. I mean, you have to wonder if you could get away with giving a speech at Yale Medical School where you talk about the, you know, the medical necessity for the extermination of of whiteness globally, because this person got away with saying that she wanted to go around and shoot people. So what I I just want to know, at what point does Yale University, a private institution, say that they want to, you know, they want to pull the plug, pull the mic and, and not allow for this kind of horrifying racism? Because that's what it is. Well, Let's get into more of Dr. Kilanani here. What she said, it's on tape, so we know. Continuing here with Dr. Kilanani's speech at Yale University Medical School and, and why I've, I've said to you that it seems like there's no level of anti-white vitriol that she could have possibly said in this speech. Remember, this is a, this is a, you know, people were watching this. This wasn't a private conversation that was leaked. I mean, she was giving a presentation. You know, this starts to remind me of how we all were asking questions about, remember the Fort Hood mass shooter, Nidal Hassan, and how he was giving presentations in the army about the moral righteousness of suicide bombing in the name of Islam. That actually happened. But no one wanted to say anything because, oh, we don't want to be racist by 
pointing out that Nadal Hassan is like pro Al Qaeda suicide bomber. That 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 sounds xenophobic. And then, of course, the tragedy that unfolded later, the horrific, bloodthirsty murder of his fellow service members on behalf of Al Qaeda on the Arabian Peninsula, direct contact to Anwar al-Awlaki. Right. So we know that this can happen where people will just get away with saying unbelievably awful things at institutions that supposedly pride themselves on having principles and mission and a sense of decency. I mean, we certainly expect that from the military. I don't know if we even expect that from Yale University anymore. What are some other things that Dr. Kilanani said? Quote, I systematically white ghosted most of my friends and I got rid of the couple white BIPOCs that snuck in my crew, too, she said, using an acronym for black and indigenous and people of color. I had fantasies of unloading a revolver into the head of any white person that got in my way, burying their body and wiping my bloody hands as I walked away relatively guiltless with a bounce in my step like I did the world a favor, she said, adding an expletive in the audio. Later in the lecture, Dr. Kilanani, who said she is of Indian descent, described the futility of trying to talk directly to white people about race, calling it a waste of our breath. Here's what she says about white people. Quote, we are asking a demented, violent predator who thinks they are a saint or a superhero to accept responsibility, she said. It ain't going to happen. They have five holes in their brain. Dr. Kilanani, a, for, a forensic psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, said in an email on Saturday that her words had been taken out of context, of course, to control the narrative. She said her lecture had used provocation as a tool for real engagement. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? Oh, I was taken out of context and I was just trying to engage. Right. Really run the engage with this. Run this thought experiment. You're a medical professional. You show up at Yale University and you talk about the joys of murdering people of another race because their race makes them awful and wonder how long it is before your life is absolutely crushed. Your job is 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 gone. Your degree is taken from you. You are hounded out of public life. You are, you know, your friends, maybe even family members won't talk to you, right? This woman gave a speech at Yale and it was it was apparently fine. Apparently why? Well, because she's denigrating whiteness. Which is now this is a a great tool of leftist virtue signaling as well. The more horrific things you're willing to say about whiteness, the more morally elevated you are on the left. You know this is true. You see it all the time. You, you can say the most awful things about white people, their oppression, their racism, their uh, their lack of of, you know, moral decency. And and, it, and as long as you're just focusing on whiteness, fine. You can't say this about any other race. Any other race. You know, I mean, you even if you say that, you know, one group racially seems to like do disproportionately well in a certain academic discipline say, you know, science or math, not even allowed to say that anymore. You're not allowed to not even to say nice things. You know, oh, well, this I've heard that this group does really well on, you know, in math. No, not allowed, not allowed. You can't say anything. All you, the only racial discourse 
that the left allows in America today is a is a constant back and forth of extreme victimization ideology and the most the most punitive approach possible, you know, rhetorically speaking to whiteness, the awfulness, the evil of whiteness. This is a left wing obsession now, and it's pretty terrifying when you think about it. One woman who identified herself, just wondering what the reaction was at Yale University. One woman who identified herself as a Yale psychologist called uh, Dr. Kilinani's speech absolutely brilliant. Another man who saw it said, I felt very shook in a good way. And a black woman thanked Dr. Kilinani for giving to us as people of color, uh, giving voice rather to us as people of color and what we go through all the time. Dr. Kilinani received her medical state license 2008, blah, 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 more professional stuff. Um, it's amazing, folks. So I, I want to be very clear. This is not some deranged lunatic that everybody saw as such at Yale. People liked this speech. She said she fantasized about putting bullets in the brains of white people because they're so awful as a result of their whiteness. She did this at Yale University, and not only was it okay as far as Yale was concerned at the time, no one said anything until it came out publicly, there were people who said they thought it was a great speech. There's audio of it. Barry Weiss on her Substack has you go, uh, it's terrifying. But this is really laying bare for you, for everybody to understand that that hatred of whiteness is fashionable on the left. And there are a lot of white liberals who engage in this because for them, it's the ultimate form of virtue signaling. They excel. They go above their whiteness. They exceed their whiteness by constantly espousing this racial Marxist creed of the left. Harsanyi time. Our friend David Harsanyi, senior writer at National Review, is with us now. And uh, we're going to talk about all the things. David, great to have you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So let's start with the mansion move here uh, to to not go along with the Democrats to either pass H.R. 1 or it seems based on his statements to go along with their destruction of the Senate filibuster. I, I feel like this is just where you see people who are in the media, they're advocating for one side or the other. That's just based upon what they want. I mean, there's really no principle involved here because some of the same voices in the media and the Democrat Party that want the filibuster gone were big proponents of the filibuster under Trump. And it just couldn't be any more obvious. But I guess it doesn't matter, right? I mean, duplicitousness and hypocrisy is actually just the price of doing business for the left these days. Well, yeah, and I think this issue exemplifies that more than perhaps any other issue. I mean, it is just shameless for them to sign a letter, I think, in 2017. I think it was 32 Democrat senators, uh, you know, imploring Mitch McConnell to uh, protect the filibuster to now say we have to get rid of it simply, um, you know, and it's been in place, you know, since the 1830s, I think, and and used. So it's just amazing. And um it is amazing to think that it takes one only, you know, one or two Democrats to save the filibuster, which in my in my view is one of the last sort of, you know, I know it's not in the Constitution, but it's one of the last tools we have to defend federalism and, and states rights in almost any way. And the, you know, H.R. 1, 
um, I think is what Democrats thought would do it for them, meaning I think they thought that that was an emotional enough issue that they could break the filibuster with it because it's, you know, about voting rights, supposedly, and everything like that. Um, it seems unlikely to me they're going to be able to blow up the filibuster over, like, an infrastructure deal or something. So uh, this is pretty devastating for, for, for them. Well, it, it seems to it seems to indicate that we're, what we're looking at now is a Biden administration that's going to it's going to they're going to spend a lot of money and there's going to be some annoying executive orders. But we're not looking we're not looking likely to get any legislation that is transformative uh, in the way unless something changes. Right. Mansion cinema, they're going to be under all this pressure. So that's going to be, I think, where this goes. There's going to be pressure campaigns against Democrats to break and maybe they will. But if this holds, David, it seems like we're not the the transformational legislation, H.R. 1, the best example of it. But there are others uh, that the Democrats have talked about. Doesn't look like it's likely to happen before the midterms. No, um, you know, unless something changes. But I think that, you know, there'll be a lot of spending of money, which I do not like. But, you know, those aren't generational. I mean, they are in, in the fact, you know, in the sense that we'll have debt, but they're not changing and destroying the Constitution or constitutional limits or changing, fundamentally changing the way the federal government does business. So that's, I think, some good news. Um, though things can change. And, I, you know, I just wanted to note that, you know, everyone, you know, there's a fixation on mansion and cinema. You know, they ask them every other day or every day, basically, if they're going to blow up the filibuster. They don't ask them, you know, about the Hyde Amendment or anything else because media campaigns for the for breaking up the filibuster. Um, but it you know, it is the most important thing that's happened over the last like three years. This op ed, I think, by Manchin, because though he's answered it many times, you know, he's broken his word many times. And this was so definitive. I just can't see him backing away from it. Maybe I'm maybe I'm putting too much hope into one guy. But it seems to me like this is this shut the door on that. What, where do you think the Democrats go next if they really feel like this has been a uh, this is a, is a hurdle they won't be able to get past through pressure, right? Obviously, everything changes if you get Mansion, Cinema, any of these any of these holdouts to say, no, fine, we will get rid of the filibuster. And I'm sure Democrats, they'll try it even if they don't think it's likely, because then it seems like they're they're still hoping to get this thing done. Right. So they benefit even just from the act of pressuring. Um, but what do you think their next move will be now uh, on, on the legislative front or, or what, what do they go to? Uh, at this stage, given that now they do have a pretty serious procedural block to get around. Yeah. And you, you make a good point about, uh, you know, just perceptions, because actually there has been nothing that uh, that Republicans have stopped or been able to stop. This has always been an intra party fight among Democrats. Right. So it's not even like they had a chance to break the filibuster, really. So um, this is all about. Biden turning far left, basically trying to give progressives what they want with tons of spending and tons of intrusions and a few moderates uh, saying no. Now, I think, you know, we always talk about Manchin and cinema, but there are probably others like Tester or whoever. I'm, you know, I don't exactly know what he said about this stuff that, that are also probably going to have trouble voting for these sorts of things anyway. Right. So um, I think there's a bigger they want to create the perception that this is Mitch McConnell standing in the way of their agenda, but that's not been the case at all. Uh, if they want to pass spending bills, they get one more, I think um, they can do it, but they can't pass these other things because they can't convince Democrats to do it. We're speaking to David Harsanyi, senior writer at nationalreview.com. David, you, you've written a book on firearms. What is, what, what's the title of the book again for everybody listening? First Freedom. 
first freedom about about the Second Amendment, guns, the right to bear arms. Uh, what what do you think is the significance of this decision by a federal judge out in California to say, guys, we, we've had an assault rifle ban for 30 years. This it's not helping anybody. Assault rifles are in common usage all across the United States. This has got to go. Now, there's a 30 day stay on the order so that there can be a kind of opening for appeal or something. You know, there, there's some procedural. But he did put out in a uh, in an opinion that we that California's done this for 30 years. And basically it's dumb and a Second Amendment violation. You give us give us some of your thoughts on this. I've always thought assault rifle bans were, uh, were uh, you know, undermine the Second Amendment because there's no real reason for them in the sense that they are not weapons of war. Um, they are not particularly dangerous in the sense that they're not used in criminality that often, very rarely, in fact. Um, obviously, they were used in these specific, uh, you know, horrifying mass shootings, and that's horrifying, et cetera. But it's not, you know you know, because the, you know, the gun does it. The gun is a semi-automatic rifle like any other. It's just a, a you know, a, a concocted sort of assault rifle just concocted to make a ban. It doesn't really mean anything. It's constantly changing and evolving. So, and it is definitely in common use. It is the most, uh, you know, the most popular rifle in use. You know, its mechanisms were invented basically by John Browning. You know, they've been around forever. It's not like some newfangled, you know, high-tech weapon or anything. And there's really no um, there's really no legal case after Heller to ban it. Everything Heller said about common use guns, this it meet, you know AR-15 meets it. So um, I think this could be trouble for them. I mean, I think this could go to the Supreme Court, and I think that AR-15 bans can be overturned. Um, then I just wonder if states will ignore it as they do Heller, frankly, in like places like New York and D.C. They just basically ignore the law. I I wanted to try to tie together here, David, one of one of your. Uh, issues that you're you're constantly on the second amendment and one of mine which is masks i've now reached the point where i i tell everybody i said just look around why is it that i knew that there was an irrational attachment to these things for months and months before it's now beyond it's it's beyond obvious i mean it's like you're walking around there are people outside who are vaccinated there's even been some people i think my friend ami horowitz did a video where he walks around asks people why are you wearing a mask and they're saying because it makes me feel safe or because it makes me feel more comfortable. And they'll say, well, you know, you, you you're vac- are you vaccinated? Yes. OK, you're vaccinated. You're also young. You're also outdoors, but you're still wearing a mask. Why? And and they know at some level, I mean, the, they, they don't have a sound or reasonable argument to keep doing this. But there's an emotional attachment to these things. I feel like with with guns, one of the things that liberals have done is created a an emotional revulsion against firearms so essentially instead of it being an art like you're talking about the mechanisms this is semi-automatic rifle other semi-automatic rifles are firing the same bullets in many cases and and even at the same speed and you know and it doesn't matter though because they've just deeply embedded in the left-wing mindset in the democrat brain guns are bad I mean, is, is that where we are in the Second Amendment debate now? Because it feels like we can never make any headway based on on facts the same way we can't with masks. The masks now are beyond fact. Well, yeah, I definitely think that's part of it, you know, and it's become a partisan issue of late. I think, you know, I grew up in a place where you grew up uh, where no, hardly anyone had any guns. So the idea of a gun is alien and scary. And it and it, I never really cared very much about it until I got older and, and, and lived places where people had them. And I saw how. 
that culture. And that's why I wrote the book. You know, I saw how that culture was and how people treated them uh, with respect and, and were worried about safety, things like that. So, yeah, I think people who don't see them and don't have them have a revulsion. And then it becomes a political issue, urban, and rural, suburban. And uh, it, it just grows and grows. And it's like you mentioned masks. You know, some people say, you know, they wear masks because they don't want people to think they're anti-vaxxers or conservatives. And I think some people are just anti-gun because they don't want you to think that they're conservative. I know people in, uh, you know, in, in, in urban areas in, in Denver and other places I've lived who aren't as anti-gun as you think, who are, on the, you know, who are sort of on the left. Um, but I doubt they'd ever say it out loud. So I think that's just, the, you know, the perceptions people create about themselves as part of it as well. And and we are also seeing a, a number of these. There there have been a whole bunch of mass shootings the last couple of weeks. Multiple people hit. Some cases, multiple people killed. Uh, you know, up to 10, 12 people hit by rounds. And we're seeing that the, the, the media, it, it's almost like they have a decision tree that they go through with, okay, is this, does this involve a white male that we can say is a white nationalist shooter? If the answer is yes, then there's a whole bunch of news stories to run and the level of hysteria and the level of outrage about the shooting is a certain if the shooter is a non-white male and this this does not involve something we can tie into the January 6th insurrection, then there's a whole other. And, and usually gun control is is down among those issues. Right. Because right now, I think if they can talk about white nationalism and the January insurrection, that's the that is the favorite thing of the corporate media to dive into, find some excuse to dive into, even if it has nothing to do with it. But if it's, let's say, a shooting at a rap concert in Miami where 20 people are hit or 12 people are hit or, you know, there have been a number of these incidents in recent weeks. There's no like broader social conversation that we have to have, David. It's just, oh, well, they use pistols. Let's let's do an assault rifle ban. Why don't Republicans want to stop the violence with our assault rifle ban? Yeah, I mean, the answers they have for the shootings never actually deal with why the shootings happen. And, you know, as a as a Second Amendment advocate, I guess I, you know, these shootings, I mean, aside from how terrible they are on just a moral and personal level for people, they undermine my 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 standing. Right. I I don't want people I don't want criminals to abuse their rights with guns. I, I, of course, don't want anyone to get shot. And these these events are terrible. Um, So. But the way they deal with it, as you just mentioned, where if it doesn't fall into whatever preconceived political argument they have, they just ignore it. And that just shows you they don't really care about it. It's just another issue. It's just another partisan issue, another team sport issue where they get to, like, you know, call you a murderer and they get to call the NRA terrorists and and whatever else. And they just don't really care that much about it. They only care about it in the larger racial context, which seems to be about everything now. And that it just, you know, it's it's bad for us bad for both sides because i would like to do something to stop these uh, mass shootings i think we have a mental you know i think it's a you know mental health and healthcare issue that we have when, when it comes to this not a gun issue but we can't even have that those debates because right away no matter what gun they use no matter how they got the gun they want to you know close this that loophole which doesn't exist or they want to just ban guns um which wouldn't stop mass shootings anyway. One of the worst mass shootings of Virginia Tech, the guy, the kid had two uh, nine millimeter handguns. I mean, it. I don't know that people realize how, you know, that this is just an aesthetic thing for these shooters, not any kind of like, you know, they're not like precision, uh, you know, uh, shooters or anything like that. They just like how it looks. And it uh, and, and that's what Democrats react to. It's aesthetics of the gun it has nothing to do with it. It's you know, it's mechanisms and stuff like that. David, David Arsani, nationalreview.com. Go check out his latest. David, before we let you go, 
I've been thinking these days, I've been talking to some close friends about this. I feel like my, my primary, uh, one of my primary emotions with the Biden administration so far is, I wouldn't say contempt, but I, I, they're depressing. I, I find it a depressing administration. I was wondering, what, what's your, your primary, when you have to think about American politics right now and the, and the administration that's in charge, what's your feeling about it? It is kind of depressing, right? It's a kind of bleak. Um, I always think this, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm like, I can't believe that, that this is the clown that became president. Yep. I just feel like we can, you know, and, and I have to say this overall in my my view of history, we haven't had a lot of good presidents, you know, but this guy, he's been around forever. He's, you know, I've written about it so many times and no one cares. I stop writing about it. He's changed his positions, not a little bit, but completely changed his position on virtually everything he ever believed in. If you go back to the Senate there and look at all his major bills, there's not one of those he still supports. He's a complete fraud in that way. You know, he's just a political creature. And um, this is like Obama without any idealism, you know, without any of the sort of, uh, you know, yes. big. It's, it's depressing Obamaism. That's really what I think we just, at least for me, David, I think we finally stumbled upon it. This is a more a more depressing version of Obama's kind of Marxist vision of the future. David Harsani, everybody, go to nashreview.com. David, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Busy summer ahead, infrastructure, election reform. What does the press get wrong when covering Biden's agenda? When you watch the news, when you read the news, what do you think we get wrong? Well, look, I think some of our muscles have atrophied a little bit over the last few years, and there isn't a, a lot of memory, a recent memory or long, longer memory on how long it takes to get legislation forward or how messy uh, the process of negotiating and the process of getting legislation across the finish line can be. So we know, we understand everybody's always looking for a deadline, a timeline, things like that. But at the end of the day, uh, our focus is on getting these bills across the finish line, doing it in a bipartisan way if we can. And we certainly recognize that that can be messy along the process. So I don't know if that's the press getting it wrong. Uh, I'll leave you to the critique of that, Brian. But uh, I think sometimes we forget uh, how strange the last four years were. And when we return to a place where democracy is working, where we're talking with Democrats and Republicans, where we're trying to get bills and legislation passed, it feels foreign. But this is actually how it's supposed to work. I love that Brian Stalter has his own show at CNN. I really do. This guy is a constant source of amusement, but also a constant source of reassurance that the corporate media is craven and hilariously both inept and sycophantic when it comes to this administration. How do we, how do we, uh, how do we not get it right when it comes? Tell us what we haven't said that you want us to say so we can say more of that thing because we're journalists. Because we, we take it really seriously. We take our beliefs in journalism, really seriously here. So Brad Stelter does. He's very serious about it. He just wants to make sure that we don't say anything we're not supposed to say, you know, because we, we don't speak truth to power. We speak whatever the power wants us to to power, and that's how we keep our access and our audience. Uh, this guy's amazing. He's amazing. And I still really believe to this day that he has the job he does because he looks like uh, Jeff Zucker. And so Jeff Zucker sees him and is like, that's a guy who needs a TV show. I'm, I really think that's true. And Zucker over at CNN has that kind of power. He can do that. He can, uh, he can make those decisions, which is horrifying for the profession known as journalism. As if I, I just was, I had a, a, a friend of a friend 
reach out to me uh, over the weekend and she wanted some advice about journalism and she wants to work in it. And I just finally had to say to her, I said, look, there's really no such thing. So just understand that before you get started in this, that, that, that there's we are in a we are warring narratives, warring propaganda machines. That is what the news media is now. There can be some journalism done within that framework. But the framework is warring propaganda machines, not speaking truth to power in a nonpartisan, factual way. That's not what it is. All right, we're going to get in a roll call here in a second. First, we want to check in with our buddy, producer Mark, to see how his weekend was, make sure he got enough rest. We got a busy week this week on the show. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well. I got some rest this weekend. I hope you did as well. You've had a busy couple of weeks. Yeah, it's been it's been a lot, a lot of stuff going on. Did you watch the uh, Mayweather... Paul fight. No, you couldn't have paid me money to watch that. Come on. People I see, a lot of people I know paid $50 uh, for the pay-per-view to see eight rounds of what I understand to be a a really boring boxing match where the stakes were just sort of spectacle, right? Is, is that fair? Yeah, I don't believe it was like a big title match or anything. Yeah, like there's that. no title. So it's, it's an exhibition match. And nobody got, like, knocked out or knocked down, and they just kind of danced around the ring for eight, for eight rounds, and that's it. I, I, don't, I don't know why boxing can't be a, a, a better sport as, a, as sort of a league and as a sport. Do you know what I mean? It, it just feels like the UFC has done such a, a good job of, of creating an organization, and, and, I mean, MMA is now you know, a, a really a major business, a mainstream brand and boxing, which has been around since, you know, Greco-Roman times. It's a, such a longstanding sport. I mean, do you, Mark, do you even know, like, who's the world heavyweight champion right now? Does anyone even care? No clue. It, boxing is not even a top 10 sport in America anymore. You could say nobody really cares about traditional boxing. You're right. UFC's huge. I even hear about that all the time. And I'm not a big martial arts guy, Uh but you never hear about boxing. The only time you hear about boxing is when something like this happens. I think what was the last the last boxing match I probably watched was McGregor Mayweather, which wasn't even a real match. It was just because it was Conor McGregor, and I wanted to see him, uh, you know, be crazy and do that stuff. And you know, other people were watching. It was a party. That was the only reason I even watched it. I wouldn't have watched it outside of that. So now, eight eight rounds, Conor McGregor. I'm sorry, eight rounds of Floyd Mayweather. What is the payday required for you to get in the ring, put those gloves on, and actually go eight rounds? Oh, boy. I mean, he's 44 now. I just looked, so I guess he's not as strong as he used to be. No, definitely not, but he's still like but, the fastest, most technically competent boxer. Some people say in his weight class of all time. Exactly. So. That's what I'm saying. He may be older, but he still could kill you with one punch. Um, that would be multiple millions. I don't even know if there's a number that would make me. Do I think it. I'd get. I think I'd get in the ring for eight rounds. I mean, look, I mean, like I could get knocked out in the first round, and then I still get my payday, right? I think I'd step into that ring for. I don't. know. I think it would have to be a million dollars or more. <laughs> I think it'd have to be seven figures. Are you? I don't think I'd get in helmet? there for like ten grand. I don't think so, because like this guy could shatter my cheekbone, break my nose. You know, I, I don't want any of that. Yeah, like, can I wear a football helmet into the ring? Because then maybe I'm doing it. Did you ever watch American Gladiators growing up? I uh, definitely saw some episodes. Yeah, yeah, I, re- I remember. I remember that one. That was kind of a funny show. It was like obstacle course with all these 
guys who look like they're taking steroids against, you know, more weekend warrior athletes. It's pretty funny. Anyway, yeah, I think I will tell you this. I'm much more likely to get into a box. Like, what would it take for me to get into? I mean, I'd be a heavyweight, unfortunately. Um, and I'm, I'm north of 200 pounds. So what would it take to uh, to get me into a ring, an MMA ring? More than it would bo- boxing. I feel like there's gloves. They're a little bigger. I could just get knocked out quickly. MMA, man, I don't, I, you know, no way, no way. That would be like multiple millions. No interest in that. Yeah, because they can kick, they can choke. Yeah, cold. exactly. Like yeah. I catch, a, I catch a flying knee to the face. That could be all she wrote for the Buckster. So, like, you know, could be taking a dirt nap after that one. So I'm, I'm done so with that. So yeah, I, I'm not. You know, I did a, a tiny bit of boxing growing up. I mean, I did it as part of a sports program on Saturday mornings and actually got in the ring when I was 12 or 13 and, and did some boxing and did judo. Uh, I, I've done, I did a, did a fair amount in, in a primary grammar school. Do people say grammar? Is it, does everyone say grammar school? Some people here say primary school. Is it grammar school? Is like, I, what do you say when you're in the fourth grade, Mark, what school are you in? Elementary school. That's what I was looking for. Elementary school. Thank grammar you. school is usually older people say that. Right, right, right. Okay, I was in elementary school and, uh, you know, did like wrestling and judo and things like that. So at a very young age, I did some of that stuff. Boxing's a phenomenal workout nowadays. Oh, yeah. People love to do it for that purpose, but they don't like to watch it as a sport. Yeah. Well, the, but the thing about boxing, like I've played tennis matches, for example, or I've played, I've played on basketball teams where you get totally blown out and you're annoyed about what's going on. But it's not like a horrible physical experience. Like you might get a little gassed and you're kind of embarrassed, right? But if you lose a boxing match or a wrestling match really badly, like it, you actually, it actually hurts, <laughs> which is a whole other thing. It's like, oh, not only did I lose, but I have a black eye as well. You know what I'm saying? Yes. People bro- grew up in the schoolyard playing basketball, baseball, football even. They didn't grow up playing boxing, and I think that's where the disconnect is. Yeah, yeah, different, a different thing. But anyway... So yeah, I, I see so you didn't watch that one. All right, I was just checking that out. Um, I, I did. I was kind of. It was kind of fun. I, I got the Snow Princess to watch Braveheart with me for the first time. Now you have seen Braveheart, right? Of course. Okay. I was about. I was going to flip over the radio mic table and start. Uh, I was going to go Bobby Knight and start throwing chairs across the room here. So Snow Princess had never seen Braveheart before. And it's a I I hadn't watched it. I've probably seen it 50 times. I I mean, I can't even you can put me in any scene in Braveheart. And I think I could do the dialogue on the other side. If you just started reading lines to me like that's how many times I've seen Braveheart. And and it really does. hold. She enjoyed it. I mean, it's very violent and very there's some tough parts, but she enjoyed it. And as as a movie, I think it holds up very well. History wise. It's a little more challenging, unfortunately. Um, you know, the, the the big part of it, I think, is that they, they bring a lot of what would be a 1700s Highlander aesthetic, basically with kilts and with tartan plaid, to a medieval period. I mean, it's 1280, 1290, 1300 when all this stuff is happening, you see in the movie. So if you really think, if Braveheart is, is occurring... Around the time of the Crusades, right? Not the first Crusade, but, you know, the, some of the it's it's medieval Crusader period. It's not, you know, because because when you see the tartan plaid and, and the kilts, you almost start to think that you're watching something that's colonial era. So that the tartan plaid stuff is about 
let me see. It's 500 years out, 500 years early. And it's on all, it's William Wallace is wearing it, all of his. Look, I, if you, I, I, it's my favorite movie, folks. So I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not a great movie. It's a great movie. But some of these decisions, and I go back and I see it. I'm like, why why'd they do that? Now, I understand that with the plaid, they wanted it to be, oh, he, these are Scottish guys. And that's what we think of as Scottish. And, you know, the Scottish are actually... The Scots really come from Northern Ireland. There was a whole migration from Northern Ireland to Scotland, but that's all a different thing. But there was the Picts who go back to Roman times, P-I-C-T, Picts, go back to Roman times, and their name comes from the Painted Ones, and they gave us what we know of as Wode Raiders, who, or, or Wodes, who would wear blue. It was a, a crushed dye that they would make of, of this blue color, and they would paint their bodies in blue. If you see the King Arthur movie with Clive Owen, there's a lot of woad stuff in there. But that's really from Roman and into Dark Ages times, not into the, the medieval period of the 12. So they're about 800 years out of date with the blue face paint uh, too late and about 500 years out of date with the tartan plaid and everything else. Some of the other stuff, you know, the affair with the French princess, um, you know, I mean, she's. She's quite, quite Sophie Marceau was quite lovely. She ended up being a Bond girl some years later. I'm, I'm okay with that. Like, I, I'm not, I don't beef with some of the theatrical choices they make. Longshanks didn't actually die right when, well, he didn't die till two years after. The execution scene where they, where he's drawn and quartered, that's true. And they did partially hang him. They did eviscerate him, disembowel him, cut off his head, send his body parts to different uh, parts of, of England at the time. And or Britain. And uh, so that, that, you know, there's some stuff. Sterling Brit, the two main battles, Sterling and Falkirk. Uh, well, they say Sterling in the movie, but it's really the Battle of Sterling Bridge, which was an old stone bridge. And they did use Highlander tactics uh, to essentially ambush once enough of the uh, the English army had gotten across, particularly their cavalry. Uh, they they sent pikemen, you know, spear formation pikemen to go after the cavalry and to attack them. And, and they had a pretty decisive victory there in the movie uh, Falkirk, which is where they get there, which is where Braveheart uh, William Wallace gets his clock cleaned. What happened there wasn't that the nobles deserted. It was actually the English cavalry was much more was much larger and more adept than the Scottish cavalry and knocked them all out. And then the Welsh bowmen were able to just rain arrows down on the on the Scottish lines without cavalry to disrupt the archers. And so that's so. So some aspects of that of that part of the movie were were done correctly. But it wasn't that they were actually abandoned by the nobles. It was that the cavalry got got smashed uh, by the by the English. I'm trying to think of any other um, producer. Mark, did you know all this, by the way, before all of this historical knowledge? No, yes, did not. Learning Let's, something new. There we go. Um, and then, oh, Braveheart, the very title of the movie. I always thought they never say Braveheart in the movie, which is interesting, right? No one ever uses the term. Braveheart is actually a reference to Robert the Bruce. And there's, a, I think, an apocryphal tale that comes later on about a group that was going uh, to the to fight in a crusade. Because remember, this is during the crusading era. And somebody made a reference to the heart of Robert the Bruce, Braveheart. Um, but Robert the Bruce is the Braveheart, not William Wallace, which you don't really ever get that explanation. I, I wish they had said that at the end of the movie when they when they charge at the uh, the fields of Bannockburn, 
which is where their Scottish independence was won. So th- those were the areas. Oh, and the, the French princess, I think, was like four when or she was she was very, very young. The, the princess in the movie in, in actual history when William Wallace and her were, you know, meeting up and everything. So the, the dates are all wrong on that. I'm trying to think what else. Longshanks was very tall. He was pretty brutal. William Wallace was brutal, too, when he took some of these towns. He was very tall as well, so it was kind of a Clash of Titans thing. They think that he might have been 6'4", 6'5". Not quite Jesse Kelly tall, but a big dude. Um, Yeah, so that's... Oh, and the other thing is people got all angry because the Scottish would not have had... like, Like William Wallace and his top guys have these almost like long biker haircuts with these braids. That's a total Hollywoodization... In fact, long hair like that would have been thought to be very feminine at the time. They would have had their hair cut to uh, probably, uh, you know, below the ears. But the guys would have had their hair cut there. They wouldn't have uh, let it go that long. So anyway, I watched the I love but I love the movie. I just thought you might find some of that history interesting. I absolutely love the movie. It still holds up very well. One of the best depictions of medieval warfare in any movie you've ever seen. Um, and yes, I know the Claymore is also out of date, the two-handed sword that didn't come along till later, but it looked cool in the movie, so I, I give them a break on that one. Uh, it's still probably my favorite movie of all time, number one. Producer Mark, Mighty Ducks, Buck Sexton, Braveheart. So, you know, we got our we got our ones, so we got to check it out. All right, now into actual roll call. Actually, Producer Mark, hit that roll call, please. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. It's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton, Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. And please don't forget, I the Buck Sexton Show, I'm going to be out a few days next week on, I wouldn't say vacation, but just on recuperation, because I've had to go, I've done so much radio and TV and, and writing and everything the last, the really the last 12 months, it's just been an all-out sprint. So before I go to the 12 to 3 time slot on radio, on hundreds of radio stations across the country. Uh, we're, I'm going to take a couple of days. So I might have some guest hosts in next week, three or four days, quite honestly. I think that's what we're looking at right now. Um, but they'll be top. You know how I do it. We have great guest hosts here on the show, people that I want you to listen to, that you should listen to, who are going to do really solid shows for you. And then June 21st, 12 to 3, Clay Travis and Buck Sexton. Doing doing our thing all across the country. It's it's amazing. We're very excited about it. Um, let's get into some of your thoughts here, Dave. Hey, Buck, you're so right about people not having any news channel on the background either side. I go into people's homes every day, and the most relaxed, happy people I meet with are those that don't even have a TV on in the house. Dave, turn that. I, I'm so glad to hear you say that, man. Turn that news off in the background, everybody. News. Unless you work in news or unless you're like a stockbroker and you got to have the ticker on or something in the background, turn the news off. Choose to consume news the way you would, you know, choose to watch a, a sitcom or, you know, you don't binge watch every day. Same thing with your with your reading in on the news. In my opinion, I think this is just a better place to be. Listen to this podcast. OK, or listen to this radio show. As much of it as you can or you want to maybe watch one news show at night, you know, and uh, that's it. That's it. There's really because otherwise you, you allow the news to start to just seep too deeply into your brain. It's not good for anybody. Mike, 
Hey, Buck and Mark, good on you guys and well-deserved. Don't forget to enjoy the rare air of success as you're busting your tails on a daily basis. No surprise to me on the promotion of the noon terrestrial radio slot as I mused in January 2020. Quote, you could for sure wheel the next generation EIB Ferrari when El Rushbo hangs it up. End quote. Well, thank you, Mike. Keep up the seamless flow and the integrity in not dodging or soft peddling unpopular and or stigmatized truths that need to be said and heard nationally for the sake of the brand or the network. It's too inconsistent, even among some of the biggest and yet still trusted names. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Um, you know, I, 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 I borrow this from uh, from Murray in Clueless, the movie Clueless, but I am keeping it real. That is what we do here. Uh, that's how we do it in the, in the Buck Sexton show. Richard Buck here in North Carolina. There's a great town in the mountain called uh, in the mountains called Asheville. There are a ton of breweries and downtown's really fun. It's full of hippies and liberal loons. Ever since George Floyd, the mayor and city council have gone full woke and are anti-police. Police officers are also being harassed because of this. Their police department of 238 have lost 84 officers in a year. That's 36 percent, Buck. I might have to go soon before I have to bar hop with a bodyguard. They have to prioritize where they deploy their officers and won't investigate property crime under $1,000. Not because their DA is liberal, but because they have only 12 detectives. God help us if this trend spreads, uh, trend spreads everywhere. I th- like to thank a cop for their service while holding my shield high. Well, Richard, stay safe, man. Asheville sounds like a fun place. Thanks, everybody, for uh, joining us today here on the show. Please pass the buck and get ready for 12 to 3 starting June 21st, coast to coast, shields high.